And please be seated. It's with some bitter sweetness that I direct you to turn to Genesis 25. We have been walking with Abraham since chapter 12 of Genesis. <clears throat> we started Genesis 12 on May 15th. It's January 29th. There's been some other sermons in there. They weren't all through Genesis, but that makes eight months of focus on Father Abraham, as we call him. It's interesting, he's called the father of all who believe. Now, there's some amazing things he did in his life, no doubt, but you know there's some not-so-amazing things that he did in his life, too. He's given credit to be the father of all who believe. His main example to us is that he believed God's promised Messiah was to come, ultimately, and it was counted to him as righteousness. <clears throat> he's our example in that he believed in God's provision, his promise of provision to send the Messiah. Um, we often think of examples as follow everything he did in that person's life, model your life after their life. That's not what's meant. What's meant is to look at Abraham and see in this way he's a model believer in that he looks to God by faith for salvation. And then his life flows from this, but his life this side of glory will still be difficult and go up and go down. He's looking forward, though, to a city whose foundations have been made by God, not this fading city that we see in this life that we're living. That's how we are to think of Abraham, and that's helpful as we come to the last chapter that records the death of Abraham. <clears throat> We've already reached the climax of the faith and life of Abraham back when he was offering up his son Isaac. Now we have a chapter that ties up Abraham's life before Isaac takes over as the heir apparent of the covenant. Hear now God's holy word as I read Genesis 25, 1 through 18. Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letshim, Luamin, the sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephur, Hanak, Abida, and Elda. All these were children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in, a, in the cave of Mechpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre. The field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites, there Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbeel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jeder, Naphish, and Kedema. 
These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names. By their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. O Lord, we come to your word once again on this day, asking you for your help to understand and apply what we read. We are indeed moved by the prior testimony of those who have gone before us in the church and also through the inward witness of the Holy Spirit to a high and reverent esteem for the Holy Scriptures. In our study through Genesis and lately the life of Abraham, we are especially impressed with the majesty of the style of the text, the scope of the whole message it delivers, and the full discovery it makes of the only way of salvation being through the Messiah. As Abraham is moved to trust in you to provide the Lamb, we also are moved to trust in the Lamb who since has come, was slain for us, laying his life down for us, only to take it up again in glory. How excellent is your word, O Lord, and now we appeal to you for the inward work of your Holy Spirit to bear witness by and with your word in our hearts. I lift this prayer in the name of Christ. Amen. If you take the sections of Genesis 12 to 25, you have the life of Abraham. Think of it as ascending a a tall mountain in Colorado somewhere. Um, You go up and you're always ascending, but there'll be times where you dip lower to go back up. You're, You're moving up, but you sometimes will find yourself going down to get there. That's a little bit of the trek we've taken, really chapter 12 all the way to 22. 22, I think,'s the pinnacle of Abraham's life. This is where his faith has been matured to the point that he can even obey God when God says, take your son, your only son, who you love, and sacrifice him on Moriah. Abraham believed so thoroughly in the promises of God that Isaac was the chosen son, that even if he did sacrifice him, God would raise him up again. That's the high point in that beautiful interchange when Isaac says, where is the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide the lamb. Really, it's a book about providence. And think about the root word for providence, provide. God will provide. It's his plan that he's working, but all that's needed for that plan to unfold is provided for by God. And if he calls us to this, which he has called his people to, then we can know he'll provide for us in every way and move things to their appointed end according to his love for us and for his glory that will be seen when these things unfold. So you get to chapter 22, you're at the summit. Now you're starting to descend from the summit, but it's still pretty high up there. It's pretty amazing what happens next. In chapter 23, he is faithful to steward his wife even in death by the way he buries her with that respect, looking forward to her eventual resurrection. He weeps over her when she dies. And he also buys lands, land from the Hittites who live in Canaan. It's a statement of belief in God's promise that he will give the land to Abraham. And Abraham's saying, even at this moment, while I won't see it all unfold with my own eyes now, I'm going to buy a piece of land and own it here. I'm going to bury my wife here, and my descendants will have to continually be buried there too until we own all of the land. There's a beautiful profession of faith in that activity to buy that land where he would have himself eventually buried as well. 
we're coming down the mountain a bit, we get to chapter 24, and here's Abraham, an old man. Seems as though he's so decrepit he can't even get out of bed. He has to have a vow taken with the servant. And there he works out a plan, trusting in God's promise to find a wife for Isaac. And of course, Rebecca is provided. It's a beautiful love story. Still high up there, not the height of Abraham's life any longer, on the other side, but still high up on the mountaintop of his life. Now we basically skip to chapter 25. It's a little anticlimactic as far as the drama goes. Chapter 25 is serving as a bit of a bookend on his life, starting with the calling in chapter 12, now a summation of all that God had actually blessed Abraham with. For all his foibles, here he is at the end of his life with these long genealogies connected to him. Uh, a man only had one son at that ripe old age of 100 years old, and now he has multiple sons mentioned, and even grandsons mentioned while he's still alive. Quite a difference in the fortunes of Abraham, just from an earthly perspective, not to mention the eternal covenantal blessings God poured. But you know, when you notice this story as it unfolds, there's also the foibles of Abraham that come to light again. When we think upon Abraham, looking back from chapter 25, maybe at the base of the mountain, looking back to where we've studied, we're reminded that there is actually only one hero in the Bible. There are important people that God uses, and we remember them, and we honor their memory. We think of things that God did through them. But there's only one hero that really emerges through the lives of these people, and the hero is God himself, the triune God. That's what we remember at the death of Abraham. It has been so vividly displayed throughout his life. I want us to first see in verse 1 what something that would be easy to pass through and pass by, and indeed some interpreters do. I think you have to pause and ask some questions about the wording, and I think we'll come to some conclusions. And we'll notice that here we are with Abraham again. Even the holiest of people have their flaws. In verse 1, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. Now, I was hoping just to assume that this meant next chapter. Isaac finds Rebekah, great, my son has his wife, here I am, 137 years old, I'm going to get married again, have more children. I mean, give it to Abraham if that be the case. However, I don't think that's what the passage is describing. I think the passage is just stepping back now and giving us a wider angle on the fullness of Abraham's life in those years after Isaac was born, uh, at least how things unfolded. The timing of taking Keturah is a matter of considerable debate among the scholars. At first blush, we might think it's just an immediate chronological progression. Isaac gets the wife, then Abraham gets a wife for himself. But the indicators in the text, in this chapter, and elsewhere, indicates that Abraham most likely took Keturah as a wife before Sarah died, but after Isaac was born. Now, why might we say this is the case? Well, first of all, the sons born to Keturah that are mentioned here had grandsons already before Abraham died. Furthermore, Ishmael's sons are listed as contemporaries, it seems. It seems doubtful that all these children and grandchildren were born in just the 38 years and then sent away at that age, especially as frail as Abraham seemed to be when he was speaking to Isaac about getting a wife. Second, notice the wording in the text before us. Abraham took another wife. It doesn't say, and then Abraham took another wife, continuing the story from chapter 24. Abraham took another wife. And the word for wife in Hebrew here isn't even the usual word for wife. 
It's more like woman that's in context could mean wife. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. But now look at what Moses refers to her as in verse 5 and verse 6 of the same passage we're looking at. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. It's not typical to call a wife, a legitimate wife, a concubine. A concubine served a role in the ancient Near East. It wasn't something that God sanctioned, it was something people did. And it was usually to take another wife or woman for the purpose of having more children to propagate your name, uh, have more people to spread your area and dominion. It was a feature of the times. We already saw this taken advantage of with Hagar, and it seems like this is what happens with Keturah, which would mean Sarah would still be alive. The sons of his concubines, plural, Hagar and Keturah. Now, if this wasn't enough, some many years later, when the author of First Chronicles is writing, maybe Samuel, he's referring back many years before, 500 years prior, uh, more than that actually, to what happened in Abraham's day. And First Chronicles 132 says, the sons born to Keturah, Abraham's concubine, were Zimran, Jokshan, and so forth, and names them off. So typically, that title would not be used for someone who was the legitimate wife. The first wife died, he marries another wife. Uh, so it seems like an intermixture of terms for Keturah. Perhaps he took her as a concubine, and then after some time, when Sarah died, then she becomes his wife, or viewed that way. One other reason for thinking that Keturah was taken as a wife before Sarah died is the way that Abraham viewed the sons born through Keturah. It says in verse 5, he gave all he had to Isaac. Um, if this was a legitimate wife, not a concubine, he would legally be obligated to see them as some level of heir. Isaac could have been primary heir, covenantal heir, he would know that. But he would look at those other sons differently than he actually does. He does show them benevolence the same way he does with Ishmael's sons and Ishmael himself, but not the same as Isaac. So there seems to be a difference here, and that difference may stem from Keturah's standing as a concubine and not a wife. Frankly, and honestly, I would love to have seen Abraham finish better here. But he didn't. And lots of people don't. Let it be a, a warning to us in our older age that we should not imagine that we'll just cross the finish line with no extra scars. But he did finish the finish line, cross the finish line faith, with faith in his God. And that's how he's typified, despite the fact that there are these issues in his life. And I think by design, we are given a true transparent vision of this, so we are not unclear about the pitfalls of humanity in the need to be resting in Abram's God, not in Abram. Culture is a powerful influence on our behavior, and we see this in the lives of the patriarchs, especially related to polygamy here, something that always, always caused problems and hardship and resentment and difficulty, not just for then, but for the ages that unfold after. Whatever the case is concerning the timing of Abraham taking Keturah as a wife, we're reminded throughout Abraham's life even the holiest of people, and I think he's number one in the Bible under Jesus, who doesn't really count because Jesus is God and the Bible's about him. If you're just to rank the rest of the people, I put Abraham at number one as far as who we can relate with, why God, or the way God used Abraham being so powerful in our salvation, uh, the first real picture of how he would send the seed 
from the woman to be the Messiah and bless the nations. Yet nevertheless, you have this issue of his frailties and his shortcomings. Think of the, the various times in which we're ascending the mountain of his life and then he lies about his wife to the point where it almost got her killed. Uh, you can't get much worse than that, even as faithful as he was on the whole as a husband. And then think of this happening again without having learned the lesson the first time with Abimelech. Agreeing with his wife's plan about Hagar. Lots of twists and turns in their lives. Faith and faltering. Nevertheless, we are reminded the truth about humanity, even the holiest among humanity. Verse 7, these are the days of the years of Abraham's life. 175 years, a, a life of long blessing. Abraham breathed his last and died a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Was gathered to his people as an idiom for death. It's a way of saying that he joined his ancestors in death who had gone before him. And for the one who trusts in Christ and the city whose foundations have been made by God, the eternal Canaan, for that person being gathered to his people carries also the notion of joining with those who have already entered eternal rest. And almost like they're waiting there for us when we get there. Gathered to his people. The same phrase is used for Ishmael, for Isaac, for Jacob. Later it's used for Aaron and it's used for Moses. It's a great phrase to describe this departure from our physical life while we wait the, await the resurrection. Lest we somehow suffer a letdown on this last sermon in Abraham's life, learning these realities helps us also move in a direction that gives us appreciation for the whole message of the Scripture. God has a purpose for even this weakness in Abraham's life. And we see how it unfolds in God's plan of redemption. And that God's plan for redemption is not hindered by the weakness of human beings. Look at verse 11. So what after all this is true about Abraham? After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. God's promises of covenant blessing were made because God, according to the good pleasure of his will, chose to do this, to bring salvation. And so he blesses Isaac, his son, because of his word to Abraham, not because of Abraham. And Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. God uses a whole bunch of weak, flawed, and frail people to accomplish his plan for redemption. Even the lives of Abraham and Sarah, we see God moving things to his intended ends despite all the pain and suffering they fell under through their own doing many times. Even their weaknesses are not in any way a barricade against God's sovereign providence working its way forward. Abraham's leaving the promised land during that plague in the early days could have blown the whole thing, at least from our perspective. Lying about his wife twice, like I mentioned, could have ended everything right there. The impatience regarding Hagar could have blown it all up. Yet God kept covenant despite Abraham's many faults. And God using flawed people is good news to us. It did not begin with Abraham and continues after Abraham. The known flaws of Adam, yet God promises to send a second Adam. Think of Noah. What does he do right after the ark lands? He gets drunk. Abraham, we've seen enough about him already. Moses, the great Moses, maybe number two on the list. 
He curses the rock after he's seen all that God has done. The judges, one after the other, shows frailty and flaws and faltering. Yet God uses those judges for his purpose, to move forward his plan of redemption. He gives the people of Israel a king like everybody else had, a flawed king that cared more about himself than anyone else, Saul. Even David, a man after his own heart, showed his weaknesses as a human being, but not in a way that could ever thwart God's final plan of salvation. Solomon, the son of David, had all the wisdom in the world, yet he was too much in love with the world. The kings of Israel, you can count on one hand how many good ones were in the south, and on no fingers how many good ones were in the north. But this did not stop God from showing himself faithful to bring the king of kings eventually. Even the prophets, oftentimes they lost faith under the, under the hand of God's discipline. God gives them his word. He shares it with the Israelites. But they even are defeated by their own depression about the matter, not looking to God the way they told others to look to him. But God, even through the weakness of the prophets, forecasts the final prophet to come. Not only is God's plan not hindered by human weakness, it seems as though this is the way of things. This is how he does it, so none of us can imagine ourselves as being some kind of linchpin in what God would do. When Paul's writing to the Corinthians, an interesting group of people, not the usual Jewish audience with some Bible background who become believers, but rather, these are people who had no religious background, or the background they had was Greek mythology and such. They come to Christ, and they're pretty pumped up about their new faith in Christ, and they're seeing great things happen with, through evangelism and through missions and through the spread of the church. And Paul says to them, because they still had a lot of problems going on in Corinth, I mean, a lot of problems, and he speaks to them in this way twice. First in 1 Corinthians 1, he says to the Corinthians, God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that, why does he do it this way? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God, not even Abraham. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, because of God's work, who became for us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It's about Christ. So that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Ultimately, that was Abraham's boast in the Lord and his promises, and that must be ours as well. Paul writes a second letter to the Corinthians. In chapter 4, he says to them, we have this treasure in jars of clay. The treasure is the gospel. Why would God entrust it to jars of clay that are cheap and easy to break and you could break into? They're not what you put something precious in, but that's what God does. He puts a treasure in jars of clay, us, why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It seems to be God's modus that he uses our weakness to accent his glory. A beautiful picture of how this plays out in people's perspective that we could all appreciate. You have two people praying and look at the different angle on them that the Lord Jesus himself sees in the Gospel of Luke. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus to God, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. There's a disappointment that strikes us when we see someone we look up to in the faith falter. But the right reaction is not that, it's woe is us. We're so weak. We're all so weak. Who do we look to? Who do we look to to gain our strength back? And that's exactly the the design of using weak people, that the focus is not on us. It has to be to God. Because if you look to me very long, you will be disappointed. If you look at your neighbor very long, you'll be disappointed. You know, when all of us die, someone's going to look at your emails that are still there. Someone will get your Facebook account. They'll know what your direct messages were. All of us got a little bit of Abraham to deal with. That should humble us about it, to know that's true of our weakness. You know, we get to see the end of Abraham's life. It's on full display. There'll be a much greater display for all of us. That sense we get when we think about that should drive us right to Christ and make us beat our breasts, not say, man, am I glad I'm not like the rest of the people out there. I love what Paul said to Timothy, who was a pastor, who struggled, no doubt, with sufficiency about the job and the task that God had called him to. Paul shared his own experience, because you would say, looking at Paul, he has reasons for confidence with his education, with his stature, with his citizenship. He had everything going for him that would make the world say, this is a guy who should be successful and should be able to do whatever he wants. He led to the murder of people. That's what he used his influence for. So when he's writing to Timothy, it's against this backdrop that he encourages him. He said, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, Timothy, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. I think the point to gather here is that your background is not an impediment for God using you for his glory. Your past does not eliminate you from kingdom service. Your current struggles that you feel so inept concerning regarding your Christianity does not stop God from using you in some way to bless someone else. Your current weaknesses and struggles are not too much for God to use you. They were not too much in Abraham's life for him to do what he did. There may be lasting earthly consequences, no doubt, for things we've done. But this does not mean that God won't still use you for a great many things. And this leads us to the final culminating point of the life of Abraham. You might say it's the culminating point of the scriptures. God is the hero of the Bible. All of the accounts of scripture amount to one conclusion. The triune God is the true hero of scripture. It's true, you look at Adam and you think the first human being, pre-fall Adam even, the head of the race, but it's Christ who comes as the better Adam, the true and better Adam, as it says. You look at Noah and think of what a hero he might be considered to be, for sure. It's an amazing thing. He builds this ark by faith. He preserves the seed that will come from the woman that will be the Messiah. But it's Christ who is the true ark of salvation, the one who brings us to eternal safety. Noah's an important person. He's recounted for in other places in the scripture, but 
as a type that's much lesser and inferior, so we see who the true hero of this all is. Abraham, the father of the faithful, the father of all those who believe. He models the Christian life in this way, the ups and the downs of it. He trusts God to the point of being willing to sacrifice his son. But God is the hero of Abraham's life and the founder of the eternal city that Abraham can't wait to get to. Jesus is the actual son. Isaac is a picture of that son. It's amazing what Isaac's willing to do, follow his father's will, carry the wood. But it's Jesus who carries the cross that frees us from our sins. That's the ultimate hero in the Bible. Jacob wrestles with God. We'll get there in just a little bit, Lord willing. He gets injured in that interchange with God, bearing a limp the rest of his life, pointing to his relationship with God, that he'll wrestle with God on behalf of the promises of God for his people. A father of the 12 tribes that become Israel. But Christ is the hero who took the Father's wrath to the point of death on our behalf and is the head of the new Israel, the church. Then there's Joseph. If I were to do a ranking, he'd be very close to number two or three. Joseph, who, while man, his brothers, his own brothers, counted for evil something against him, but God used it for good. And here's the story of providence in Joseph's life, placing him at Pharaoh's right hand so his power could be used to preserve the people of God and preserve the messianic line. But it's Christ who's the ultimate hero here. He is the deliverer from sin and eternal slavery. He's the one who is our perfect leader and deliverer. He is the one who is seated at God's right hand upon his ascension. And from there he rules and will come again. And he's subduing his enemies to himself. All of us, former enemies. And he subdued you to himself. Moses, the hero to Israel, probably most people would put him as number two. He frees them from Egypt, brings them to the promised land, leads them, literally leads them across on dry land, spoke God's word to them, led them to the brink of the promised land. But yet there's Christ, the greater Moses, the ultimate hero who himself is our deliverer from sin and eternal slavery. He's the hero of the Bible pictured in Moses, the good shepherd who leads us to the promised land, the eternal promised land. Then there's David, the great and glorious king, who was meant to be a picture of what a benevolent, godly king could be. He gave his people many victories, more victories than they'd ever seen known across the known world at that time for being a deliverer of his people who gave them victories. A picture of a godly king, but he left us longing for more, longing for a final king who has been met in the person of Christ. Christ is the eternal hero king of, the, of his people for all time. And that's the story of the scriptures. This is said of God and not of David. He is the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, the God to whom all honor and glory be forever and ever. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the aim of the scriptures, and that's what Abraham's life amounts to point to. At the end of Abraham's life, we're grateful for all that God did through Abraham and has taught us as we have studied him. We end the life of Abraham knowing it is God who is the hero 
of Abraham's life and the hero of our lives. The hymn writer said this, The whole triumphant host gives thanks to God on high. Hail Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, they ever cry. Hail Abraham's God and mine. I join the heavenly lays. All might and majesty are thine. And endless praise. And so we come to verse 8 and verse 9, ending the life of Abraham. Abraham believed or breathed his last and died in a good old age. An old man full of years. And he was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, a strange prior to this, come together on the occasion of their father's funeral. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Mechphalah. We know this place. In the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. The story of Abraham has been one of God's providence. Providence means provide. Isaac asks his father, where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide the lamb. Abraham has provided an example for us of a life of faith in God's promises. To a degree, yes, Abraham's life is a paradigm for the Christian life. It pictures what it will look like in the ups and downs, the faithfulness and the faltering. But it is his faith in God's salvation that is credited to him as righteousness. Whatever else the case, it's our faith in God's Messiah that's credited to us as righteousness. That's the great legacy of Abraham's life. The thing that was credited to him as righteousness and thus a right standing with God was his belief in God's promise that I will send a Messiah that will pay for your sins. I will bring you to the promised land through him. Believe in him. That's always and ever the ultimate story of the scriptures for all its beautiful complexities, for all the difficulties of its parts when we try to interpret it. Don't miss that basic bottom line. Do you believe in the promises of God? So we end the study of Abraham's life, and I'll close by reading two passages. The first is the New Testament synopsis of Abraham and Sarah. Hebrews 11, verse 8 and following. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. The second verse I want to close with is the one that my dear mentor, Dr. David Calhoun, would use whenever he would end a lecture on somebody that God gave faithfulness to the end. Sometimes he would do a lecture on a person who didn't end well, and he would just simply say, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. That was his way of reminding us of what's eternal. But on those occasions when there would be someone who for all their foibles would bear some marks of faithfulness that we could look to, he would close with this verse, and this is how we'll close the life of Abraham. 
Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. To the God of Abraham, who is also our God and Father, having spent this time in your holy word, we are compelled again through Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit to give you our praise. You reign enthroned above. You are the ancient of everlasting days and the God of love. Jehovah, you are the great I am, by earth and heaven confessed. We bow and bless your sacred name forever blessed. Amen. Let's turn.